You're in Pittsburgh, right? Boogie. Let's do it. Okay, the story begins. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Large crowd tonight, so. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, chapter 21, page 239, 240, really, ish. So. What's going on? What's taking place? I can answer that. I just need to remember. Oh yeah, the diminishment. Okay. Right. Where is God? So, this is always, I, I always, well, always being twice. Okay, fine, twice. Twice, I've really enjoyed the concepts that are described in this chapter. And then in discussions as well. Okay, good. I have a hard time with these chapters. Well, <laughs> I, I'm not saying I understand them like like I would like to understand them. But I, I, just, mean, I just think the whole, the whole concept of God... Um, God is infinite, yet God is finite. And the, the concept of God's infinite... God's, infiniteness allowing himself to finite himself to the point where we can actually be present with him and not be absorbed you know the, the overwhelmed whole, the whole team to me team to meme concept of of being able to like you know exist and and uh, uh, be in the presence of God you know that, that the whole thing just I really like that concept it's just Okay, amazing, amazing. So, so just to to put these chapters into context, context, not contest, <clears throat> into context. Chapter eighteen and nineteen. We said every Jew has this flaming, burning passion for God. We may not have all of, we may not have discovered it, become aware of it, but we all have it, because we have this passion for God. We are willing to, we'll do whatever it takes to not sever ourselves from him. Which means, when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to something that tests our faith, our very core, our very essence, all of a sudden we've discovered our Jewish identity and I'm a passionate, proud Jew and this is who I am. How do I apply that to Every day, Torah and mitzvah is not just idolatry, not just things that are relevant to my, you know, to my very core. Right? How do I become passionate about God without having a gun held to my head, without an anti-Semite approaching me? How do I make my relationship with God just as passionate to wake up in the morning and put on tefillin, keep Shabbos, light Shabbos, or keep kosher, or, or whatever it may be? So to understand this, chapter 20 said we're going to digress for a little bit and to understand how we're passionate about God for every mitzvah, not just idolatry, we first have to understand what God is, what idolatry is. Idolatry means rejecting God, faith, accepting God. What is this God whom we are rejecting or accepting? And in last weeks or two weeks ago, in chapter 20, we said that God doesn't just exist. God's reality is the, is the ultimate. God's existence is, the, is, is 
all of reality. In other words, God isn't just one. Well, sorry, when we say God is one, we don't mean there is one God, not two, not three. We mean God is literally one. There is only God. That's all that exists. That is the only one. That is the only reality. I had a teacher, he said that if you believe that God merely exists, you're not a believer, you're a philosopher. That's a great idea. It's an idea. If you believe that God is relevant, that's a faith. faith. That's faith. Faith means that God is re God being relevant means everything is an expression of Him. And we gave an analogy. And we gave an analogy to understand the analogy. <laughs> the analogy we gave, or the analogy to understand the analogy. We'll get and we'll backtrack. What is more valuable? A dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill? Or the printer that creates that dollar bill or hundred dollar bill? What's more valuable? The printer. The printer, right? Now, if you have that printer, what is that dollar bill worth to you? Not much. Not much. It has value. You can purchase things with it. But its value is negligible. It doesn't really matter. Because you have infinite dollar bills. In Tanya, he gave a similar analogy. You take a word. Words are very powerful. Words can build people. Words, words can destroy people. Words can get us very far in both negative and positive ways. Words are very powerful. But if you take that isolated word and compare it to the ability to speak, which is the person, you trace go back to that word's source, that word is negligible because you have so many words you can produce. Maybe on its own it's valuable, but in its source, the person who has the ability to speak, right, the printer of the money, the value of that word is negligible. And we said it's the same thing with God. God created the world, the, the world with speech. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. Let there be etc. Everything that exists, besides for our bodies and souls of human beings, the body formed by the hands of God and the soul being blown into us. But other than that, everything else was created with speech. What is that? What is this world? What is the existence as we know it worth? Independently, it's very valuable. But relative to the ability to produce an infinite amount of words, to produce an infinite amount of existence, in other words, God, relative to Him, it's negligible. Not to say that we're nothing and that we're worthless, but that's why we're worth so much. Well, so, so you know, and, and actually that, that, that's kind of like where I... It's an awesome concept, but it's a troubling concept. And I haven't quite crossed the bridge away from the troubling, the, the troublesomeness of, of it because, you know, it, 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 it's, it's like, okay, um, everything that... We are analogous to a single... Like, my, my existence is analogous to a single word. And if a single word is negligible to God that a single person's existence is negligible to God, it's troublesome. It's beautiful. 
Because why do you exist if you're negligible? Why do I exist if I'm negligible? Because I must be important. Your value is not your existence. Your value is the fact that he wants you. See, and, and well, and by, by extension of this concept, not to say, you know, if, if everything, if, if God is, if, if, if God is, well, God is. So, so if, if God is, then God is this table. God is this bottle. God is this person. God, God, right? So that makes me God. Now, I, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's like everything. But that makes you valuable. Right, that, that, that you're right. much more valuable. Right, which is why the, the concept of the valuable and negligible are, <clears throat> how do you, it's, it's like, well, which one? Or both at the same time, right? That, that's the greatest value, Bitzel. Bitzel is the greatest, that's true greatness. Right? Where I'm... It's not about me. I'm part of something bigger. That's why I'm valuable. That's what makes me great. I'm part of something bigger, but not just something bigger. You can, you know, you're part of a company. You're part of something bigger. But you're part of a deep, true reality. Might not be our perceptual reality. Often not our preferred reality. <laughs> But we're part of a very true, deep reality. And perhaps our minds can't even take us there. We can get there, and we'll, still, we'll soon see how. But we're part of something much deeper and bigger. Are we negligible as independent existences? Yes. But as God's creation, at the end of the day, He decided He wants us. So what's more valuable? I'm important because I say I'm important, or I'm important because God says I'm important. Well, see that, and there, there's, there's the hook right there, right? Because then, if 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 I'm concerned about feeling negligible because I feel negligible, then that that's ego kicking in, right? Whereas if if I disconcern myself with my uh, my negligibility, my whatever that word might, whatever you know what I mean. If I disconnect myself with that and realize, like, it, it, this doesn't matter. I'm here because God wants me here. Then that's the true greatness. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It, it's kind of the difference between thinking little of myself, thinking little about myself. The goal here is not to think little of ourselves. It's thinking little about ourselves because there's a deeper part of us. That we have within us, which is the soul that we've been talking about, but it has this connection to 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 this deep, true reality, which we call God, who is a creator and who is the core of all existence. Because creation is quote unquote negligible. That's a, I don't like the word negligible, but that's just for lack of better words that uh, that I can. At least at the moment. Until we think of something better. Um, but creation is dependent on the creator. Because it's all from his words. He has to constantly use those words for us to exist. Just like a stone or a ball you throw in the air. In order for that ball to travel, it constantly needs that thrust, that force. 
in order for our for us to exist, God has to constantly talk, constantly speak those words, as it were. Somebody once came to a chassid and said, or actually the vice versa, the chassid, who is very well versed in these concepts, asks his fellow, who wasn't familiar with Hasidic texts, he was trying to inspire him, he said, if God wanted to destroy the world, what would he do? He said, he'll bring a flood. Right? Just like in the times of Noah. I said, okay, but the world will still be here. It won't be destroyed. It just won't be as functional, but the existence of the world will still be here. He'll bring a fire. Okay, but the world will still be here. There'll be ashes. There'll be something. He says, if God wants to destroy the world, he's not going to bring a flood. He's not going to bring fire. He's just going to stop creating the world. So you missed the important part. Like God it, gave it, us the intelligence to create... Uh... Uh, nuclear weapons with, with enough power to blow this world into a, a trillion pieces. Is that still the world? <laughs> <laughs> it's still a... There, there's still something. In other words, something always exists. Yes, that is true. Yeah. The only true nothing is God. There's no such thing as nothing other than God. Which is why we call creation something from nothing. Because what else... Without God, there, there is no such thing as nothing. There's always something. Whether it be air, whether it be some sort of matter, there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something we can, some degree, pinpoint, or, or there has to be. Now, in our chapter, this, this is, that's the recap for chapter 20. Now, as we segue into chapter 21, he says that we can't compare our speech exactly to God's speech. It's a little bit different. Our speech is negligible before we said what we said, right? When it was just a feeling, right? Feelings have no language. But once we said it, the damage is done, or the good is done, you walk away, right? And, and there's, what, there's you and there's what you said. But for God, that speech is one with him even after he said it. So the world is not just one with God in theory, before he created the world, before he uttered those words, so to speak. Even once he uttered the words, even once we exist, we are still absorbed in part of him. God is unchanged. He's unchanged. He's unfazed by his speech. We're phased by what we say. Because before we said what we said, those words were a part of us. After we said what we said, those words were independent. But before God said what he said, in other words, before God created, there was just him. After God created, after he said those words, which, in other words, created, those words are still a part of him, and it's still part of him. Let's take a look on <clears throat> text one on our sheets here. David, you have the, did you get the WhatsApp picture? I do. I have it up here. Okay, perfect. So we're on text one. We're so high tech here. <laughs> <laughs> we have our old tech support team. That's right. It's uh, it's um, Tanya Club in the cloud. Oh yeah, <laughs> Tanya in cyberspace. So this short prayer appears in the preliminary part of Shachris of the morning prayer, and because it's in the preliminary part, it's not given that much attention, but it's really it says so much. 
It's a praise to God, saying, You were the same before the world was created. You are the same since the world has been created. No, 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 that's that by Bar Marv. It's Atahu Adshalo Nivraha Olam, Atahu Misha Nivraha Olam. Before the world created, it was created, there was just God. But now that the world create was created, it's not that there's God and a new world. He was unchanged. And from his perspective, we'll talk more about this soon, there's just God. There's just him. Nothing's changed. He's unfazed. The example that's brought in the second section of Tanya, which, the, which elaborates on the, these concepts in great detail, the analogy he brings is the rays of the sun and the sun itself. The rays of the sun illuminate from the sun. The rays are very powerful. The rays can do a lot of good. The rays can do a lot of bad, a lot of damage. From the sun's perspective, what are those rays worth? Pretty negligible. Pretty negligible, right? If we were to take a trip to the sun, they say the first people... The first person that's ever going to take a trip to the sun is going to be an elderly person. <laughs> <laughs> Who decided that? Because they're always cold. They're always... <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. I think it's going to be me. Right, cold. <laughs> John is going to go to the sun. He's going to be... I can't wait. Especially this time of year. <laughs> now... In that section of Tanya, the Altarebbe clarifies that this isn't a perfect analogy because the ray is only negligible in the sun, but once it comes to our world, it's not negligible anymore. But God, but God is everywhere. From his perspective, he's everywhere. So everything's negligible only while it's in him, but it's always in him. And it's a very difficult concept to understand. It's, it's something that... It's really, I mean, that's why it's faith. God created the world. He produced something independent. And what we're saying is that independent thing is dependent. It's actually part of him. Right? What you said never was expressed verbally and never left you. It's still still there. It's still part of you. It's still negligible. Still batzel, as we say. Batzel is a really, is, is, is a, a better word. So by extension, it seems that we say something, it's, it's no longer a part of us. But if we, if, if we are a part of God at all times, then what has separated from us after we spoke it must be a part of God as well. Yeah, everything. Yeah. It's no longer a part of us, but it's still a part of God. It's still part of Him. I mean, just like this table is not a part of you. Right. It's still part of God. It's still part of Him. The Rebbe Maharash, by Shmuel of Lubavitch, the, the fourth Rebbe of the Chabad dynasty, was uh, happened to be an expert carpenter. It was his, one of his hobbies as a kid. And actually, if you look, if you go to, in Crown Heights, to the Rebbe's office to the Rebbe's study there's a little table in the corner there that was built by the Rebbe Maharash when he was older his physician told him that he has to get his hands busy he had issues with his hands and his hands had to be busy 
So he did carpentry work. He also did a lot of writing. He wrote Megillas. He wrote other stuff. He was a child of five years old, engaged in some sort of woodworking project. And somebody came to him with a beautiful carving knife and said, if you can tell me where God is, I'll give you my knife. He's trying to challenge a five-year-old. The five-year-old pulls out his knife and says, if you could tell me where God isn't, I'll give you my knife. Good response. <laughs> the guy was so impressed, he gives him his knife. <laughs> He's like, you win. <laughs> he grew response. up to being one of the greatest leaders in Revis. The one who challenged him? No, no, the, the, the challenged Challenge. the, the Rebbe. With, with that response. But that's the idea that, that God is everywhere, is everything. From our perspective, it seems independent. Now, part of the challenge, part of the problem is we often make this mistake. You know, in relationships, we make a mistake, off, or people make mistakes. We make assumptions about people. Because we have a certain way of thinking, we have a certain way of processing, we have a certain way, we have certain preferences, and obviously you do also. And when you don't meet my expectations, I get very frustrated with you, you get very frustrated with me because we have very different expectations of life, but we're assuming we have the same expectations, and the relationship just becomes very confusing. Same as with God. We put God in a certain box because we're in that box. So obviously he's in that box because that's just the prison that we're looking from. And he points out in the beginning of the chapter, 239 on the bottom, now the blessed one, now the blessed holy one's attributes are unlike the attributes of man of flesh and blood. God is not like us. Oh, sorry. I'm throwing things at you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't take it personal. Um... <laughs> We can't just assume that because we are a certain way, that's the way God is. And when we create something, we don't actually create. There's no such thing as a human being creating anything. We don't create, we formulate. We take something that ex exists, we reshape it into something else. And we call it a creation. So now we say, oh, God creates... Obviously, what that means is what we understand creation as, reforming. So he took a world, formed it, and he could walk away. Just like I take a, a block of silver, form it, and I could walk away. And that's where the disconnect is. God creates. When we say God creates, that's quite literal. It didn't exist, and now it does. And therefore, it's dependent on him. He can't just walk away. It's a part of him. And that miscommunication that we often have, totally, we, we misunderstand God, we misunderstand his presence and, and, and um, his presence in our reality. Uh, analogy might be like if you're driving a car and you press the gas pedal, the car will keep going, but if you let up on the gas and you're in a stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
the car is constantly dependent on somebody on somebody operating, right? The world is constantly dependent on its operator. Unless you yeah. have cruise control, then that. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, that's what it is. The world is not on cruise control. God's very much involved, and because He's involved in the world in its creation constantly, so He's not just overseeing what happens in the world; He's actually a part of what's happening in the world. Which begs the question: If God is the world, and everything's an expression of Him, just like the rays of the sun within the sun, right? It's all. Him or speech from a person, it's all part of him. Where is he? Why can't I see him? That, that's the million dollar question. Well, you know, I, I think it depends on what you think you're looking for. To say, I want, I want to observe God, right? Because if, if, if we think, oh, we're made in God's image, then we're going to look for God to be looking somewhat like us. But if we say, well, God is everywhere, and we know that God is everywhere, then that changes your, your ch changes your, uh, your perspective on what, you know, because now I see God in those Shabbos candles. I see God. You, you believe Bremen. God in those Shabbos candles. Hmm? You believe it, but you actually see it. Well, uh, all right, that, 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 that's, that's a nuance I have to think about. Um, I don't expect you to see it necessarily. Uh, maybe we will in chapter 29. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> He's giving it away. <laughs> Forecasting. Um, but you know what I mean? It changes your perspective on what you think um, uh, and, and, how, and how you perceive God, God's presence. Right? Definitely. Definitely. You, you mentioned the idea earlier of Tsimtsum, God hiding himself. For some reason, God felt the need to hide himself. Imagine if he didn't hide himself. What would happen? We'd be like standing on the sun. We'd be standing on the sun, right? No ozone layer. It would be very overwhelming. He would be doing us a disservice. He reveals himself to us by hiding us. By hiding himself. What does a good teacher do? A really good teacher. If, a te if the teacher is very smart. Very intelligent. Very knowledgeable. And he starts dumping loads and loads of information. As he understands it. To a new student. He's going to overwhelm the student. A good teacher hides what he knows. Hides how smart he is. Gets rid of that intimidation. And just gives him a little bit at a time. And even that little bit that he gives him, he dresses it up with a beautiful analogy and sugarcoats it makes it palatable. Now the student will take that idea, chew it over, reflect on it, understand it, and eventually, it might be 40 years later, but eventually get the full depth of what the teacher really meant and really understand how wise that teacher was and how much he really knew and how much he was giving me in, the, in, in that little drop, in that little summary. All right, for example, you have the entire oral Torah that was repeated on Mount Sinai and it was condensed into the Mishnah. Mishnah is like headlines. 
there's so much in that Mishnah. And the proof is you have pages and pages of Talmud discussing and analyzing one Mishnah because there's so much packed in there. You can't write down everything. The Mishnah had to be brief. You can't give a student everything. You have to summarize it. God can't give us his whole glory. He has to have symptom. He has to condense himself. If he doesn't, he's, that's, he's not revealing himself. He's actually hiding himself. He's isolating us from him. He's going to overwhelm us. Or in Hasidic lingo, we won't even be able to exist in the first place. Because existence as we know it, as an independence, as, in, as, independ, as an independent reality, although it's not, contradicts his reality being everything. So he hides himself. So, whereas um, God directly gave the people the first two commandments, the rest was transmitted through Moshe, which, meant, which means that Moshe was able to be in the presence of God's fullness or not. That's a question. I'm okay, asking. Okay. good point. Uh, to a degree. Moshe did have a high level of Bitzel. Realized that how negligible he was, despite how great he was. He could handle it to a degree. But even Moshe asked God, show me your face. And God said, I'll show you behind me. I'm not going to show you my face. You can't. But very, very good point. Very valid point. Let's take a look on page 244. So the bottom bold paragraph 244, all these diminishments, the tzimtzumim, are what the Torah refers to as the hiding of God's face. A process of hiding and obscuring the light and life energy which comes from God's speech. So that it would not be overly disclosed in a way that the lower worlds cannot contain it. Right? It, so it won't be, it simply just won't be overwhelming. If God just says it like it is without condensing, right? If the teacher says it like it is, without explaining, without summarizing, without giving analogies, without dressing up the idea... And sugarcoating, the student's just going to be overwhelmed that it's not—it's just not going to work. And it's the same thing with God. It's just—it's just not going to work. Now the reality is, from the from the teacher's perspective, is that summary change his knowledge? Not, not in the least. Not in the least, right? So when you're teaching somebody, and you provide for them a summary, a couple of lines, right? So imagine you took this whole chapter and you thought about it, you chewed it over, you really understood it, and you were able to repeat it back to somebody in one line. What they heard was one line. But what did you hear? Everything. Everything. Everything's in there. So when God does tzimtzum, when God hides himself, what we see is that one line. But from his perspective, did anything really change? Nothing. The reason is you can't hide yourself. It doesn't work. Everything is him. So whatever's hiding him is actually him. Let's take a look in text 3. Text 3 is an excerpt on our sheets here. An excerpt from the Shulchan Aruch. 
code of Jewish law, laws of prayer. What is acceptable? Uh, what is considered to be an acceptable head covering? Right, we have, during prayer we have to wear a yarmulke, a kippah, or some sort of head covering. What constitutes an appropriate head covering? What works? What doesn't? Placing one's hand on the head is not considered covering. If another person places their hand on one's head, this is considered covering. So you can't cover yourself. But someone else could. Can you cover your sleeve? Good, good question. So let's take a look at text four. Text four is the Mishnah Bruda. Mishnah Bruda is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. And he explains, why can't you cover yourself? This is because the hand and the head are part of the same body, and a body cannot cover itself. So God hides himself, right? Is he really hiding? In reality, is he actually hiding, right? No, because what would be hiding him? Himself. Himself, because he's the only thing that exists. Right. And you can't hide you can't hide yourself. Right. Because you are you and you can't hide you. Now, in regards to the sleeve, if you read a little bit further in the Mishnah Bura, the Bayit Chadash, which is another commentary, writes, however, that it is customary to use one's own sleeve as a head covering, and that would be sufficient to being considered an acceptable head covering. Because hmm. your sleeve is not you. Your okay. hand is you. I'm, I'm troubled by this. Okay. Why well, I've been doing this a lot. Well, the reason I'm troubled by this is because um, the laws of Shabbos. So you're wearing that sweater right now. It's considered to be effectively part of you, so you can walk down the street with that on. If you take he's that, he's wearing it. He's wearing it. If you take that off and drape it over your arm, now you're carrying something independent. So you're wearing something right now. You're saying it should be considered part That's, of you. It should be considered part of you. Which is why you're allowed to carry it, you're saying. Right, so it's still part of you. But now if you go like this, then you're covering yourself because your sweater is part of you. So, sorry. I, I'm troubled by this. <laughs> is just because you're wearing something, does that make it part of you? Well, is, in other words, you're, you're assuming that the reason why you're allowed to carry it is because it's part of you. Well, you're, you're wearing it, therefore you're not carrying it. And That's why you're allowed to carry it. That's why. Because you're wearing it. Yes. There's an it that you're wearing. But it... Uh, but... So... So, the, so you can't... The it is still separate then. The it is still separate. The it is still separate. You can wear a backpack, but then that's still considered carrying, right? Correct. In other words, a backpack wouldn't be part of you. Certain thing. It depends... It's a little bit of things that are garments, you know, a, a weapon. Hmm. It's not a weapon. Oh. It's not considered a garment. It's not considered ornamental either. Even though you're wearing it. A garment is, certain things are, certain things aren't. It, it's, so it's, a, it's, it's a very good question, very good comparison. But, but it's not, doesn't match up exactly. Okay, sorry, we don't need to but, but keep it's, digging into that. Okay, but no, but good point, good point, good point. I like I you like the line thinking. of I like the line of thought. I like the line of thought. Very good. Had me worried for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump to page two forty five, uh, in the middle. The middle bold paragraph two forty five. But from God's perspective, there has been no diminishment, hiding, or concealment that would hide or conceal anything in His presence. The concealment is really just from our perspective. 
But if his perspective is the reality, is there really a concealment? Not from his perspective. Not from his perspective. There is from our perspective. Now, how do we get past that? We have to drop the perspective. We have to what? Drop the perspective. We have to stop thinking. <laughs> we'll get we'll we'll get to we'll get to that soon. We'll get more, more into that soon. In, in what uh, Jonah tried to hide from God. Tried oh. to hide from God. Oh. <laughs> good, good, good call. Also, Adam tried to hide from God when they did the sin. Oh. Right? Good, good call. So Adam didn't study Tanya. They didn't study Tanya. That's funny. <laughs> but 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 that's the idea. You can't really hide from him. You can run, but you can't hide. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you can run, but you can't hide. Came from Tanya. I didn't know that. <laughs> Just one more line on two forty three, because I think these lines—they're little short tidbits, but really, I think brings out the point. Uh, the bottom pe- bold paragraph two forty three. It is only from the creation's perspective, who receive their lives force from God's speech that a process of emergence has actually taken place within the creation of the world of the world as the disclosures of God's energy and light through his speech becomes enmeshed and the creation is giving them life it's only from our perspective from God's perspective nothing changed before the world was created it was him once the world was created from his perspective it's him the only thing that changed is us but if we're negligible, I don't like that word. I don't know why. It, just, it sounds negative, but it's, it's, not, it's not what I mean. <laughs> not nominal. If we're not nominal. If we're, I don't know. Because ne- negligible, not in the sense that we don't, that we're not important, but that we're not independently a reality. A reality. That dollar bill is still important, still useful. Otherwise, the printer wouldn't print it. Right. Right? Even though we're negligible, God still created us. Which makes us even more valuable because we're valuable not just because we exist, we're valuable because He chose us to exist. We can be rounded off. Hmm? What? (laughs) (laughs) Like in... uh math if you have like 96.9 becomes 97 we're like that point one. <laughs> we can be rounded off I get you we're still there we rounded off my, my yeah <laughs> math has never been my uh, forte my forte <laughs> math Geography, oh, wow. and um, that's well, well, math part may not, but the geography. What's the third? What's the third one? Um, navigation. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm just teasing. All the things that you're <laughs> geography, navigation. Oh yeah, you're saying first. I see. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, we believe there's a God in heaven, but we see ourselves. We don't see God as a very 
relevant part of our lives. We believe that he's up there. And how do we get ourselves to see this perspective? How do we get ourselves to see this true reality, to see this perspective? It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Is it even possible? In other words, is it something like... You know, like it's within reach. It's within reach. It is within reach. But how do we get there? There we go. I was going to say it by studying Tanya. By studying Tanya. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's a valid answer. There's this perspective that we're trying to reach. This godly perspective. The only way we can get to that perspective is with our godly soul. Because our godly soul lives that perspective. From our godly soul's perspective, there is no question that God is the underlying reality of everything. It's not even, it's just so clear to the godly soul. The godly soul has that clarity. A tzaddik, someone who has totally internalized the godly soul, so it's not just the way, their behavior is not just in line with the godly soul, not just their behavior as a bainani, but even the way they think and feel is in line with their divine soul. So to them, there's no question that God is everything. The Altarebbe once said to his, I think it was his, I think it was the Altarebbe and his son, he said to him, look at the ceiling, look at that beam, what do you see? He says, I see a wooden beam. He says, you're still young. <laughs> it's not a beam. It's God giving vitality so that beam exists. And what you see is a beam through this level of process of symptom. That's the way the Altarebbe saw things, the author of the time, because he was someone who totally internalized the divine soul. Now, the goal of Tanya is not so we can be tzaddikim. The goal is to be a benini. The goal is that our behavior should be in line with the divine soul. And to a degree, we should feel and see that way. But we're not going to totally internalize it. But how do we, how do we get there? There was the Magid of Kajnitz. The Magid of Kajnitz was a disciple of the Magid of Mezrich. All these guys come from funny name places. They all, yeah, all the <laughs> <Russia>. <laughs> all the good names were taken. <laughs> it's no wonder I can't remember any any of their names or places. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the so just the historical context. The Magid of there was the Balshemtov who pioneered the Hasidic movement. The Balshemtov's predecessor was the Magid of Mezrich. The Magid of Mezrich had myriads of disciples, one of them being the Altarebbe, one of them being the Magid of Kajnitz. The Magid of Kajnitz was on his deathbed, and he tells his son, I'm at the point where I don't have a body, I'm just a soul. His son is looking at him, I see a body. <laughs> he feels his hand. I feel a body. The Mahagat of Kajanitz responds to him, you see, you see a body, you feel a body, because that's the perspective you're looking from. You feel like a body. So you see body. But if you could get past the body and live life from the paradigm of your soul, from the prism of your soul, the perspective of your soul, you'll see that I'm just a soul. And it, it's the same thing with the soul of the world, if you will, God. How do I see that God is the reality of existence? Or at least how do I believe it if I'm not going to see it? How do I at least believe it? I have to let go of the body. 
That doesn't mean neglect our body, God forbid. But it's shifting focus from body to soul. Wasn't Hillel also, didn't Hillel always say, I have to feed it now? Or... Great, good, good, great analogy. Hillel said, I have to do my body a favor. <laughs> he, that's not how he identified himself. Now, we're not going to totally do that. We're not tzaddikim, but to a degree we can. In chapter 29 of Tanya, he alludes to this idea, and he says, very often, I don't feel my soul. I don't feel like I'm getting inspired. I don't feel like I'm going to see life from this perspective. My animal soul is just too strong, and that's what I've mainly internalized. What do I do? And he brings a quote from the Zohar. When you have a log and you want to ignite that log on fire, if the log is too thick, it's not going to catch on fire. On the contrary, it's going to, you light a match, it's just going to put the match out. So you have to take that log and you have to soften it up a little bit. The body is not getting inspired, not lighting up. It's like this thick and sensitive log. It's, we're giving it too much credence. It's too thick. It's too, it's too insensitive. And we have to soften it up a little bit. Become more sensitive to the soul. When we become more sensitive to the soul, we could actually, more sensitive to our purpose in life, more sensitive to who we really are as Jews, we can actually start to see life in this way. In chapter 32 of Tanya, this, this is one big puzzle. In chapter 32 of Tanya, he says this is the foundation of Judaism. Why? Because what happens when we make a shift from body paradigm to soul paradigm how do I view other people as souls as a soul how does that impact my relationship with other people you realize that they are as much a part of God as you are and, and you begin to see them as as, as as godly beautiful and which mitzvah is the foundation of Judaism uh, love your brothers God is, well God is one God is one, and love your fellow. Love your fellow. And they're both part of the same thing. Yeah. As soon as we shift from that body prism to soul prism, the way I see a person is I see a soul. The way I view the world is I see God. And it's one and the same, because that soul is part of God. And now everything gets strung together, everything comes together. And sometimes that just requires letting go. We, we are very focused in, we're, we're very focused on our bodies. We are, it's just, it's normal. We're not tzaddikim. So, I am once again in a quandary. Okay. I get, I get into these quite a bit. <clears throat> All right, so here we are. We're, we've reached this point where we've, our paradigm has shifted. We see, we see each other as, Godly souls. Okay. The, the context of our conversations have typically been as how Jews see fellow Jews. Well, what if there's a non-Jew sitting across from me? They, they still have a soul. Do, do, do they have... How do, I, how do I perceive them now? Because do, do they, are they also imbued with a, a, a divine soul and an animal soul? I mean, is that concept a purely 
Do you see where I'm lost now? Yeah. Like, like okay, so, so it's like, how, how do I see somebody as a... It's a good question. Do? Tanya doesn't really address this, so it's hard. It's a good question. Can you, can you repeat the question? Oh, sorry. Can you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah. So I was asking, you know, the, the, when we study Tanya, it's been in the context of how Jews interact with Jews. And so all Jews have this divine soul and animal soul. Um, but if, 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 we're, if we extend the concept to uh, how we view non-Jews, how, 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 do, how, how, are we, how do we view non-Jews? I mean, I just, you know, you know, is the concept of divine and animal soul only apply to Jews? And, and, or or does, does everyone have, regardless of whether they're a Jew or non-Jew, have an animal soul and a divine soul? So, I, I'm, you know, that's, that's, that was my question. Then what happens if they convert? Well, then they're then they both. Well, if they convert, then they they, they have that soul. But I mean, you know, if you're supposed to love your fellow man, doesn't it's not love your fellow Jew? Although that apply that you know, it's more than just love your fellow Jew. It's love your fellow man who may not be a Jew, also, right? Um, and again, God created everything, in, including non-Jews. So, you see, it's like this. This suddenly the, the, the conversation expands. A non-Jew has a soul. Look, everybody has a soul. Every every existence has a soul because everything exists. Right. It's not the same soul. Jew's soul wasn't spoken. It was breathed. Right? Every, everything in creation was spoken. In order... That, that's how it came into existence. Through speech, as we've been saying. The soul was, was, was through breath. God blew the soul. came from a deeper place. Ananji does not have that. You're not going to... If you connect to your soul... Put it bluntly. You're not going to see Ananji in the same way. doesn't mean you're going to look down at them, God forbid. Um, but you're not going to see them the same way that you see a Jew. The connection won't be the same. It, it just won't be. You know, you go to a, just from personal experiences, you go to like an airport or something, or you go somewhere random, and there's tons of people, you don't know anybody, right? Everybody's in line. And all of a sudden you see a guy with a yarmulke. And you see a guy with um, with tzitzis, and you look at him, and he's staring at you, and you're giving each other like, that's right. There's there's this instant bond. There's a certain connection that exists that you feel. And what Tanya is arguing is that it's not just a cultural connection. We both dress the same way, or we both have the same customs and values. It's a deeper connection. There's a deeper commonality. And you feel it. I, w- I was going to say, I think I had this experience coming here. I came out of the bar, walked to the Stone Ridge Mall, and at, there was a table, a group, and I couldn't hear for sure, but it sounded like they were speaking Hebrew. I think they were Israelis. And I, so I was passing by, I thought, in a way I was feeling a bond with them. I, I don't know if they felt that of me as I walked by. They probably didn't know, have any idea. But that, that, that's a beautiful illustration. And that shows that it's not just cultural, because you're not a fluent Hebrew speaker. 
You weren't part of the conversation. But my judar was on. But your judar was on. That's what the judar is. There's this, there's this, there's this connection that's deeper than just the linguistics. It's deeper than the culture. It's deeper than the values. It's your soul. But let me ask, kind of from the opposite direction. What if all your life you you grew up with a friend who's non-Jewish and, and, and you you know just you know really know each other really well, but then uh-huh. but then you meet a Jew who's He's just got the worst character, and you basically grew up, you realize, I just don't like this guy. I mean, what's, how do we explain that? Either his soul's buried or your soul's buried, hmm. right? Must be his. Must <laughs> be his. <laughs> <laughs> no, but somebody, they're, they're, somebody's soul, to a degree, at least in that relationship, there's obviously that bond is not felt. Hmm. And there's, there's a reason. There's something covered. It doesn't mean it's not there. It, it's covering it up. There's, some, there's something I'm trying to find here in chapter 29. I'm having trouble finding it, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful it chapter. It all my questions. It will answer all your questions. It will. <laughs> chapter 26. Just wait for chapter 26. <laughs> but don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're only five chapters away. We're getting to chapter 26. is incredible. Look at it. I'm saying that because of our GLI class um, coming going from worrying to being a warrior and uh, last night's session was based on chapter 26 uh-huh. the hardest one of the hardest chapters it? Okay. I must have blocked it out of my mind or just simply forgot on one of the two <laughs> or, or I just don't know them by the numbers it's about um, like uh, seeing the good in things that are seemingly negative. Ah. Yes. Yeah. Having trouble here. I'm sorry. Yeah, no worries. Okay, I'll have to find it later. But he basically says in that chapter that if we can get past the body. He says that light will always outshine and dissipate darkness. It's automatic. So why is the animal soul, why is the body obstructing the light of the godly soul? How is that even possible? If you have light within you and you have darkness, how could that darkness possibly obstruct this light? Good question. And he says that God gave, God made an exception to this rule that light dissipates darkness because he wants us to intentionally illuminate not just organically he wants it to be our choice which is the same reason why God hit himself so we could make these choices but what he says is once you make that choice and you come to that realization and you make a choice I'm going to identify it with my divine soul and I'm going to intentionally illuminate so what happens is you're living life from the divine soul paradigm and you'll see God. That's what he says. And he says you won't just understand that there is a God and you believe. He says you'll see it. But with literal sight. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means you're literally your, eye, your eyes are going to see it like the altar ever did as a tzaddik. Or at least you'll, you'll get it. You'll have that clarity. You won't have any questions. We won't have any doubts. 
Because he says that doubt means there's this cloud of darkness blocking me and I'm not seeing from my soul. So just get rid of that darkness, intentionally illuminate, and now that, that darkness is gone and we could see the reality, that the reality of our existence is God. The reality of every single Jew that we look at, look at is God and that impacts our relationship with God, the world, with people. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. All right. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks for tuning in. It's late there by you, huh? I didn't realize.